0: I'm realizing it's still going to be a long time. I felt, you know, I got into Bitcoin almost 11 years ago and I thought by this point, I'm sure everybody will be spending Bitcoin, right? (laughs) I don't think so. I don't think, I think it's going to be a long time still. You may have come back too early. It's still early. And, you know, I was just thinking as humans, we're really bad at gauging this kind of stuff, especially uh, techies, because well, the is all there. Look, it all does this. It all connects. You just need to build a front end. Okay, good to go. How hard can it be? Uh, as we're recording, you know, we just got new CPI information. I'm looking at it. I'm thinking with the macro environment the way it is, it's going to be a long time before we see 100K Bitcoin and things like that. And uh, until it does, I'm going to feel poor, <laughs> you know? <laughs> for sure. I've just kind of settled in for that, trying not to uh, dwell on it, but trying to be real about it.
1: You can barely remember when it was, whatever, 69K, and you thought, Oh boy, next step one hundred. And but actually the next step was forty and then twenty nine.
0: <laughs> yeah, the signs were all there. I'm you know, looking back now, the signs were all there in October. You started to see the Fed start to kind of change their tone about interest rates, and that was really the first one sign. Yeah, that
1: was a sign for traditional markets to move to risk off, and that means that a lot of the hedge funds and traders who were messing around with Bitcoin, they started to move into more defensive assets i guess and just you know moving into that tightening environment it just takes the hot air out of all of these valuations and for the moment bitcoin trades like a tech stock we think that'll change in the future but until then it's a if i say it's a buying opportunity are we giving financial advice
0: um sounds like a I mean, no, recommendation that technically is true it is technically a better price than it was six months ago oh
1: well a better price for what because there's the price and then there's the risk adjusted price okay i mean the risk adjusted price is a judgment but it's saying hey even though this price is higher than it was five years ago we know so much more about bitcoin and the world and we know that a lot of the bad outcomes like bitcoin being banned aren't going to happen so maybe this is a better price even though it's more expensive because there's less risk now
0: well and as we're going to get into later in the show here in the states banning is anything but what's going to
1: speaking of shows this is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, June 10th, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I am here, as always, with Chris. Me.
0: Hey. Hey, everybody. Welcome back.
1: We should probably write down, do I say Chris? Do you say Chris?
0: I love it. Okay.
1: it's That's our that's our signature thing. It
0: is our thing, because, you know.
1: All the other podcasts, they say, hey, how's it going? Oh, I'm good. Are you, How are you, sir?
0: Oh, I'm very well, blah, blah, blah. But insert we do.
1: friendly banter here. Right. But we just have that moment. It's like, am I going to say it? Are you going to say it?
0: I like to wait. I kind of like to make you say it every time, but i like to maybe fake you out to make you think I'm going to say it. Just, this just is... it's our moment.
1: Listeners, observe this power play from Chris. <laughs> this is what I deal with.
0: I know. I'm such a maniac. <laughs> I know. Well,
1: you do run a global you know. podcasting empire.
0: Yeah, I have to lash out in small ways. I
1: know. At least you stopped throwing stuff. Yeah, it that, made too much noise. That podcasting handbook, it, it left a mark. I still can't. Yeah, feeling... and
0: then when I threw my headphones, that was short-sighted, like, how am I going to hear you after that? Well,
1: so. you threw your reading glasses. That was very short sighted. Hey. Hey. <laughs> Today we are going to talk about the Loomis and Gillibrand crypto bill. I may take a negative stance, Chris may take a positive, could be an interesting debate. We will also discuss a New York Times article, which is throwing shade on Bitcoin's decentralization. It's based on an essentially unpublished paper, so it's pretty weak arguments, but you know, we gotta debunk it when we get the opportunity. PayPal enables crypto payments, but they've chosen some goofy currencies to enable. We'll get into that. And Some human rights activists pen a letter to Congress, which is sort of an epic troll to last week's Concerned Technologist letter. Uh, Amusing, but also meaningful in economics. US Treasury Secretary Yellen says some silly things, some of which we agree with, some of which we don't. And in energy, we have some local news in the Pacific Northwest. A local power utility is charging crypto miners a different rate
0: from everyone else. The details on that one, oh, they get me.
1: Uh, I know, there's a lot going on there. In privacy news, we have surprisingly news from Norway. Not surprisingly, because it's Norway, but it's surprising news from Norway. And then in Bitcoin Education, we will get into output descriptors, which were recommended by listener Bitcoin Lizard. Don't ask him what type of lizard. He's just a lizard. Yeah, don't, don't, don't. Yeah, it's rude to ask the type of lizard. Why would
0: you do that? So awkward.
1: Okay, let's get into it. Shall we start with the Loomis and Gillibrand crypto bill?
0: Yeah, sure, you want to. Okay, let's do it. Let's just do this one. This is uh, probably... Something that maybe not everyone's even totally hip on what happened because, you know, it's legislation and it's legislation that's way out. So maybe we should start at the beginning. Sure. Now, are you familiar with uh, Loomis? I believe she's the one that's like got the laser eyes on Twitter, right? My understanding is
1: that Senator Loomis is is from. I might get. No, that's Loomis. Okay. Senator Loomis is a Republican from Wyoming. Yes. And she has gone strongly pro-crypto. And I say crypto because. I believe that she receives a lot of money from Altcoins, Web3, the sort of projects that are more centralized, are more able to deploy capital in a centralized, strategic way. And so Gillibrand has sort of signaled support for the Bitcoin community through, in my opinion, rather token gestures. You know, she puts laser eyes on her Twitter profile, which... Maybe for a politician, that's a big gesture because you look crazy when there are lasers coming out of your eyes. (laughs) You do. You do. So she's done some signaling to identify her affiliation with the Bitcoin community. And Wyoming has done some very pro-Bitcoin things.
0: That's true. That's true.
1: They created a specific form of special depository institution, which acts as a Bitcoin bank. And actually, Caitlin Long's bank, which used to be called Avanti, but has changed its name to Custodia Bank, they are a... Wyoming special purpose depository institution. And as such, they have the right to a master account with the Federal Reserve. A master account is sort of a bank account that a bank holds with the Fed. But the Fed, of course, has been delaying giving them that account for over a year now, and they're now suing the Fed. little bit of side note.
0: Yeah, isn't that interesting? And then uh, across the aisle, Kristen Gillibrand, a Democrat from New York, is the co-signer, or I guess co-introducer.
1: And that's really interesting because New York is famously anti-crypto, going so far as to pass a bill banning the expansion of of proof-of-work mining in New York State for the next two years, unless the power source is 100% renewable. That bill hasn't been signed yet, but it's indicative of things like the bit license which is essentially in my view a legacy wall street traditional finance attack on companies doing things in crypto because it imposes a massive regulatory burden that very few companies can comply with and certainly not startups so new york Unsurprisingly, because it's the home of Wall Street, is pretty hostile to crypto disruptors or I, Bitcoin I wonder disruptors. Why,
0: Dad? I mean, I wonder why. It just seems. Gosh, who, <laughs> who could say? No, but don't you think it's notable that it's bipartisan? That part I think is noticeable because there's not much as bipartisan these days. And that really speaks to the incentives of Bitcoin.
1: It's a new industry. Wyoming leaned in, and my sense is that they're benefiting from more Bitcoin business happening in their in their state. Upstate New York is arguably benefiting from. Bitcoin miners investing in the power infrastructure up there, though there is some controversy around that because there has been a report that claims that Bitcoin mining has raised power rates for people in the area, which I haven't read the report. I guess I just don't understand how that could happen because Bitcoin miners need such low power rates that I don't understand why a utility would sell power to a Bitcoin miner at a low rate and then charge customers a higher rate. Right.
0: Not even technically the same product. I mean, I grant you, at a molecular level, it's the same product. But when a Bitcoin mining operation goes in to buy power from um, a producer, they're buying a specific type of demand power. And there's a specific rate that they negotiate for that. And it's completely separate from the, what the consumers or even other industries pay. And this is not just something unique to Bitcoin mining. This is how all large industries do things. This is an established marketplace. It's been around since probably before anybody listening was born. <laughs> and it's nothing new about it. And so it's like saying that the steel mill came into town and now everyone in the town is paying more for electricity. It's generally not how it works uh, unless there's a complete lack of supply. Yeah, you then know, that's what you come down to. But going back to this bill here, uh, which we had the name of it, right? Didn't you, or did you already give the name of it? But It's the Responsible Financial Innovation Act. There you go. And it does a few things in here that I think we should probably dig into. But notably, it kind of is attempting to serve as, I guess, a set of guidelines for different agencies to figure out what digital assets are. Are they a security? Are they a commodity? How should they be taxed? How should the industries that work around them operate? What rules should they follow? Who should they report to? It's sort of an all-encompassing bill in that sense.
1: Right. And it's very unlikely to pass because Congress is not really in a mood to pass anything They're sort of gearing up for the midterm fight. So we're not going to see a lot of bipartisan cooperation, which I think is maybe another reason why this bill is remarkable and speaks to how, generally speaking, Bitcoin, and I guess more broadly, the crypto industry, is kind of a big political opportunity for politicians who can attract this industry to their areas. The bill is quite long. It's 69 pages, and it's really an omnibus. It describes an ideal, according to Loomis and Gillibrand's situation, and it essentially identifies the commodities future trading commission based out of Chicago which is the US body that regulates commodity trading in in the United States so that's gold silver platinum and also bitcoin under this bill and also maybe ethereum uh, because i think ethereum might count as a commodity under this bill and this sort of gets to the heart of why i think that this is really an altcoin bill now i think that bitcoiners Like the idea of the CFTC regulating Bitcoin, Bitcoin is in many ways a commodity. It is not created by decree of any central party. It's emitted according to a supply schedule determined by the Bitcoin code. It's allocated via a lottery process we call mining. This lottery requires using energy to essentially win the next block and therefore the associated block reward. So it's kind of like mining a physical Good, like gold because when you dig for gold you don't know if you're going to find gold you think you'll find gold in that area it's kind of like mining hashing sort of we know the odds of finding the next bitcoin block so
0: and you're expending considerable energy to gold mine or diamond mine or silver mine or, or
1: bitcoin mine and that's sort of the issue because while it logically makes sense for the cftc to regulate bitcoin the current head of the cftc has said a lot of stuff that i find concerning. Rostin Benham is the current CFTC chair, and frankly, he seems like a proof-of-stake shill. And I quote, On the one hand, we need the industry to transition and change and understand that the energy consumption is too big. Wow, sounding really smart here, buddy. But we also need consumers to understand and appreciate what's at stake so that through economic incentives, they can steer their choice away from the more energy-consumptive behavior. Okay, so he's basically saying, let's all move to proof of stake and also consumers don't buy Bitcoin because it's not proof of stake. I mean, this is pretty dumb in my view.
0: And this is the guy that runs the the, CFTC, which would be the the commission, the, the federal group that is in charge of regulating Bitcoin.
1: Right. So I think it's problematic to steer the regulation of Bitcoin to a body run by someone who's basically saying we want to nudge people towards proof of stake. That's that's sort of my first red flag. There are other red flags, but maybe we should cover some of the other details that you liked first.
0: Actually, when I just have a couple of thoughts on that. Like, it, it Also, I think we looked into it best we can understand uh, this position. The head of the uh, CFTC is appointed by the president, and it seems to be an indefinite appointment. Like you don't like get reappointed by the next president, at least according to Wikipedia. Could have that wrong. Um, and you're right. He does seem like, I don't like that line in there about creating economic incentives so that way people don't buy Bitcoin. What does that even mean? What does he mean there? And claiming that it uses big energy is, is so silly, especially when you put it in perspective of just about every other major industry, but you put it in perspective of tumble dryers or air conditioners and it's still a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of even that power. So let's be real about the energy usage. But the thing is, the flaw I find in your argument is, by my logic, it actually should be The CFTC that's going to regulate Bitcoin. If a U.S. if we're going to have a U.S. body, if we're going to have a federal agency that regulates Bitcoin, which we're going to need to do if we want it to be, I guess, institutionalized. I think you could argue that. I think both of you and I have mixed very mixed feelings on that. But if it's going to be institutionalized, if it's going to be part of the system, if it's going to be recognized by the United States government, if it's going to go to one hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, a million dollars, this has to happen. So it seems like it, it should be the CFTC and not the SEC. I think the real problem is the leadership of the CFTC, not the fact that it's, this seems to be the appropriate location for it. And the other thing I like as a Bitcoiner is the CFTC is a lot smaller than the SEC. I was just looking up their budget on Wikipedia. It's pathetic. And they often don't even get the amount of money they're asking for. Um, for better or for worse, and like when we have those uh, dramatic government shutdowns, when the Congress critters can't, you know, come to an agreement on a budget, CFTC gets shut down. The SEC doesn't get shut down, but the CFTC does. It, it seems like there would be a lot more hands off. Like he may not have the best intentions for Bitcoin long term, but he probably doesn't have the resources to do anything. And this this is the body that should probably have this, not the SEC. So while I agree that I don't like him, I don't necessarily think anything's wrong with the bill in that regard because it seems like that is the right place for it.
1: Okay, a reasonable point because if we think of it from a first principles. You know, what's the logical regulator here? The commodities regulator makes sense given Bitcoin's properties. Where I see the problem is that it now creates an incentive for every altcoin to prove that it's a commodity so that they can get the regulatory free pass. Now, one thing that this bill does, I think, is I believe that it also dismantles the Howey test. Now, the Howey test is the regulatory test. It's really just like four questions. And it provides clarity as to what is a security and what is not.
0: I know a couple of principles about it. Like, I know one of the things about the Howey test is that if it's centrally managed, right, if it has managers who are maintaining it, then that's one of the ways you fail the Howey test. That pretty much is every altcoin I could think of. A Howey test is how courts
1: and the SEC determine what is an investment contract. And it's an investment of money. It's in a common enterprise with the expectation of profit to be derived from the efforts of others basically describes every cryptocurrency. Now, why doesn't it describe Bitcoin? First of all, there's no common enterprise or others involved. There's no uniform group in Bitcoin that we are deriving our profits from or through uh, through asset appreciation. So I think that the Howey test is great and it is an excellent gatekeeper to legitimate projects. You know, I'd be interested to apply the Howey test to Monero and see what people come up with. The problem with this bill is that it acknowledges that a lot of altcoins pass the Howey test and our securities. But then it also says, but the thing is, these coins do not have the same rights as securities because they're not really equity because they're essentially meaningless tokens that give you no claim on anything. So instead of acknowledging that a meaningless token that gives you no claim on anything yet is sort of like an illegal security, that, in my view, shouldn't exist. But what this bill suggests is Well, you know what? Let's call that an ancillary asset and let's give that to the SEC to regulate. So it's basically saying this is an opportunity for all of these illegal securities to become legal ancillary assets that are not quite securities. And instead of the four quarterly reports that a security has to submit, a a public security generally has to submit, I think, four 10-Qs and then one 10-K report every year. So that's five reports. That's a lot of work. That's very expensive. They only have to submit two reports a year. I guess it's good for a bill to say that the SEC should regulate these altcoins that, in my view, are all unregulated securities. That said, in the bill, you kind of see the logic that altcoins are illegal securities that have no value. And yet it's saying, there's no problem here. Let's just, you know, make them legal. So I think this kind of betrays the problems of the American political system, because altcoins have a big marketing budget to buy political cover. And I
0: see that in this bill. Yeah. In fact, uh, another proof of stake lobby was just recently formed. So Section 301 of the bill provides legal clarity for commodities and securities. And in here, they note that digital assets, which are not fully decentralized, which benefit from entrepreneurial and managerial efforts. (laughs) That determine the value of assets, but they do not represent securities because they are not a debt or an equity or an interest in a business entity. So therefore, they are ancillary assets. And yeah, they'll have those twice a year disclosures, but they're like baby securities. They're they're redefining what a security is in this bill. You're absolutely right. And then they say they're doing this to balance investor protection and, and uh, whatnot. They make it a little bit easier for some of these exchanges to interpret how they're supposed to comply with some of this bill. There's language in here that specifically says it's kind of up to their discretion. You're absolutely right. I didn't read it this way at first, but now I read it with the way you're seeing it. And I absolutely do interpret this as basically a free pass for probably... The most established altcoins. So I think the question you have to ask yourself is, do we want to use government legislation as a tool to kill the altcoins? Is that the hope? Was that the desired outcome? Is that legislation would come and it would lay waste to all altcoins that are basically securities and then we'd move forward into a Bitcoin predominant future? I don't know if this is the right tool to to get us that future, one. And number two, I'm not saying I'm this person, but I could see the devil's advocate position that, well, We've passed the line. We're always going to have a multi-chain future now because of all these entrenched interests. There's always going to be multiple cryptocurrencies. And if that's the case then maybe there is a need for something like this. And then the third thing that came to mind was perhaps there's a legal argument. Perhaps somebody out there has an attack against Bitcoin where they're going to claim it's a security. I mean, you look at that New York Times piece we're going to talk about in a little bit. Maybe somebody was going to try to make the claim that Bitcoin is his security, a little bit of extra insurance to make sure that doesn't happen to Bitcoin. I don't think that's likely, but I'm putting it out there. Perhaps this also provides a little additional protection. So just to recap, I don't know if this is the right tool to kill altcoins, I think it could be argued that it's too late we're already going to live in a multi-coin future so then we do need some protections and last but not least perhaps this language ultimately helps protect bitcoin too. Oh thanks Chris that's really succinct. On
1: the first point do we want government agencies and regulation to kill altcoins? I'm not sure I would frame it that way. What I want is for unregistered securities and financial scams to be treated like unregistered securities and financial scams. I don't hear anyone saying that anyone should be able to create fake stock certificates and then sell them to my grandmother or my little brother online. So if you don't think that, you know, creating financial Ponzi schemes and shady businesses that lie to their investors and misrepresent their business activity and do all sorts of these things is wrong, then I don't think you can say, oh, the government shouldn't shut down altcoins. There's this argument I hear time and time again, which is, oh, there's all this innovation. There's all this financial innovation. I have to completely disagree. There is very little financial innovation in human history, by which I mean derivatives contracts were invented approximately 5,000 years ago, life insurance 3,000 years ago. Most financial structures are very old and very established, and they're deployed in increasingly risky and leveraged ways today. And people say that's financial innovation. I call BS. I think that's complete nonsense. Now, I don't know if I'm really saying I want the U.S. government to crush altcoins. I just want them to look at what's happening. And I think that a lot of crypto bros and people who are a fan of altcoins and Web3, I think that they have a really unrealistic appreciation of how reasonable the actual investigators and people who work at these regulatory agencies are. I had the opportunity to speak to a lawyer who deals with some crypto projects. And it was a very interesting conversation because the questions that are asked are very simple. They're questions like, who's benefiting here? Who got the initial distribution of coins, tokens, shares, whatever you want to call it? What did they say about them? Did they make any promises? Did they imply certain prices? These are very simple questions. They have nothing to do with a blockchain, or tokens. This is about human behavior and what people did. And based on questions like this, I think that the vast majority of the altcoins and Web3 projects out there have committed financial crimes as they are currently defined. It's my position that the law should be enforced in these cases because I have observed over the past 10 years that most people who got involved with these schemes lost all their money and that these schemes acted as essentially a value transfer mechanism from the people who invested in them to the founders of these projects. This is, in my view, clearly predatory. It clearly violates current securities laws, and I see no reason for there to be carve-outs. Even if this supposedly is good for Bitcoin, there is no point in sacrificing basic views about legality and morality to financially benefit oneself. It undermines society. It undermines
0: Confidence in the crypto industry, perhaps?
1: Everything. It undermines our own credibility. And yeah, so I can't yeah. sign on to any bill that gives a free pass to scammers like Doquan or CZ or my opinion, obviously. I'm not saying I have proof.
0: Yeah, I follow you. It's it is. I think you could argue it is their job to find those kinds of scams, especially if they're at, operating in the United States.
1: Right. I'm just wondering, why does Loomis and Gillibrand have this language in their bill? The only reason I could possibly imagine is that they received political donations from projects that would be negatively impacted by the current enforcement of securities regulations and the Howey test. And that's why they they have this amendment to the Howey test that basically gives all of these projects, which are very likely financial scams, a at least a window to get to some sort of legality.
0: Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think it probably actually would be a better thing long term for Bitcoin if they didn't do this. Because I think as long as a lot of these Ponzi schemes continue, you're going to have the stories like I told you this morning when you got to the studio about my uh, my neighbor who was grousing about inflation and the cost of everything is killing her life savings. That she's you know she's sixty five and she's done all this work to save all her money all her whole life. She's three husbands. She's married three times. They all died on her. You know she's all by herself. Little suspicious. Little suspicious that actually. I know. And you know the worst thing is she didn't even get rich off of any of them. <laughs> So my wife just very gently suggested to her, have you, you know, looked at something like Bitcoin? And she immediately just, you know, instinctively, oh, no, 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 that's a scam. Those cryptocurrencies are a scam.
1: And that statement is right. Those cryptocurrencies are a scam.
0: There just happens to be one that isn't. And that's sort of part of the. And I think this would clear it up. People don't see, oh, well, Bitcoin, Bitcoin was created first. It's decentralized. There wasn't a pre-mine. There's no active founder running the project like they don't they don't go through this list of things like what qualifies it as a security or commodity. Uh, Granted, some more sophisticated investors do, but your average person won't do that kind of thing. So I think you are right. It is attempting to redefine the the Howey test. I think the question is, is it something we could live with if it meant regulated, stable cryptocurrency? I don't know.
1: I think that a bill like this would be very good for regulated Bitcoin and cryptocurrency products like. The grayscale Bitcoin trust, the grayscale Ethereum trust, maybe, if Ethereum doesn't blow up in proof of stake transition, which actually I wanted to get to because you had the, your three points and I was responding to one, which is, do we want the U.S. government to go after altcoins? And I sort of rephrase that as I just want them to get rid of scams. On your second point, do we accept that we live in a multi-chain world and regulation reflects that? I wonder about this because I think that in some ways we accept a multi-chain world and because Ethereum has limped on for so long, I really wonder if Ethereum survives this merge. So I'm very interested in the outcome.
0: Test merge went well, though. Oh, it did? Yeah. Okay. Man, I bet it would blow up and they would just, even if it blew up, they'd just walk it back and they'd no try it would, again.
1: No one would care. No one would care. You know, the staked ETH, the STETH peg broke, as has broken, which actually makes sense in retrospect. It's, it's kind of like Terra, you have to say, oh gosh, that was obvious because the pegged <laughs> ETH is yep. a, it's a one-way peg. You stake your ETH, you get the staked ETH token, but there's no way to take the token and get the ETH out of the underlying contract. That
0: contract
1: is in effect until the merge.
0: Once I, you stake... Right, right, right. I forgot about that little detail, but yeah. And it's locked up for a period of time until after the merge, too.
1: Right, so a one-way peg... This is actually very similar to Ruben Sampson's space chain idea, where you basically burn Bitcoin to create this new token called a space coin... And you can always burn Bitcoin to create the space coin. So the space coin will never equal more than Bitcoin. So staked ETH kind of has this property. And there are all of these lending pools like Aave. I don't really know anything about them, but I've heard it mentioned that allow you to stake your staked ETH and do all sorts of leverage things with it. So like Terra and Luna, there's actually a financial trade here where you basically break the staked ETH peg you force a lot of people to get liquidated. Then you get to buy up all the staked ETH at a very low price. Wow! And then once the merge goes through, you bought all this staked ETH for, you know, whatever, 1% of the Ethereum price, and then you get real Ethereum out of it, you know, profit. It's beautiful. So I just look at structures like that and I think, gosh, kind of looks like the Ethereum ecosystem is building in a lot of speculative attacks on Ethereum. Wonder how that's going to go. So I'm not convinced that a multi-chain world is forever. I wonder if the reckless utility chain with lots of features is kind of a thing
0: we tried once and who knows. Yeah, I wonder if it won't actually just come down to like, see the Cordano Foundation, whoever it is, it's not the foundation, but the Cordano folks, you know, there's a marketing team over there that works at the office that Charles works out of and maybe they sell some Western military something or they sell some large, you know, Boeing kind of organization, some massive product that uses Cordano or uses Solana as a base and then, you know, it's around forever at that point.
1: Cardano has actually tried that because they have this claim that they have a project in, I want to say Ethiopia, where they're building a universal ID into Cardano. Sounds incredibly dystopian, like a terrible idea. I mean, it doesn't make sense on a lot of levels because they want to store the national IDs of all Ethiopians on servers in America, and the Cardano Foundation would control that. I mean, this is really problematic. But what's really going on, in my view, is it's this type of altcoin engagement marketing project where they have a small office in Ethiopia they probably hired one or two people and they make noises like they're doing this big project and that legitimizes them selling more tokens to retail investors you know i think that's the the name of this game but not to get off track tldr i'm not sure a multi-chain world is sustainable because another thing that's changing like we said at the beginning in our pre-show discussion we're moving into a quantitative tightening world. We're moving into a world where the Federal Reserve, at least temporarily, is not expanding its balance sheet. And so to me, that suggests that a lot of these altcoins, they're kind of like those highly speculative startups that had crazy business ideas that would never make any money for 10 years. Well, we're not in an environment where people want to throw money at risky projects ad infinitum. It could be that the fundamental economics that drive these kind of more speculative chains is changing, and this will make them harder to sustain moving forward.
0: I have wondered that myself, if that perhaps isn't one of the upsides of this horrendous macro environment we're about to enter and all of the tightening and all of the rate hikes and the increase in the cost of money, perhaps the upside is some of these altcoins die off, right? And they become non-viable projects. You know what it is? It's the Linux user in me. I've watched the Linux community for 20 years. I have watched distributions that shouldn't exist, that don't have users, that don't make any money. And I have seen somebody come along and buy the name and reinvest in it and they come along. And and I just like just see this stuff stick around and last forever in Linux. And you think there's no real economic incentive. There's no real thing being built around that. But yet somebody keeps buying and selling this property, you know, and, and... they just continue forever.
1: Are we talking about Zorin OS here?
0: <laughs> That's one of them. I mean, SUSE has had its turn, too, a few times.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm a SUSE user right now, and I just do not know why. Why the hell am I using SUSE? Well, it is,
0: you know, maybe the next people that buy them up will do better.
1: The best thing I can say about open
0: a Tumbleweed is, hey, it works sometimes. I tease. I mean, I'm just saying, like. There are, SUSE actually has a big, strong uh, user base in Germany and other places. So that's not actually the great example here, but there are distributions that just kind of exist forever and they fray the investment, they fray users, they developer time. And so I I just, when I've seen that play out for 20 years in the Linux space, it's hard not to see it just repeating in the uh, crypto space.
1: That's a good point. Now, the last thing I want to say about the bill, of course, you may have more points, is just that there is a small tax-free carve-out in the bill. It suggests cryptocurrency transactions worth 200 US dollars or lower should be exempt from tax because they're small value and we don't want to stifle innovation. I think that this is a complete scrap being thrown to the Bitcoin community and it's meaningless because if you really wanted a tax-free carve-out, why don't we do something like at least $10,000? The carve-outs for cash transactions that don't need to be reported to the IRS, and and frankly, if we actually wanted to be serious, that ten thousand dollar number was created, I think, in like the '40s or something. So that number is actually closer to a hundred thousand dollars today. Now, first of all, it's not going to pass. No one's there's no appetite for that. But if it was really interested in having a serious cash carve out for allowing cryptocurrencies, and for me that means Bitcoin, to be used as a transactional currency, then the carve out would be at least ten thousand dollars or or higher. But it's $200 and that's going to be negotiated down. So it's like, OK, yeah, you know, you have to keep track of all the transactions to prove that they were under $60 at the time you sent them. I mean, that's completely worthless in my view.
0: Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. $200 doesn't make any sense at all. And I think it was like, well, you know, now you can buy coffee with Bitcoin or something like that. And I, I find it coffee is about to be $200 a cup. I mean, <laughs> it's just it with inflation right now. I just find it completely ridiculous. And I don't think it's something that will get renegotiated. I've heard some people argue, yeah, well, it's two hundred dollars today, but one day they'll re- they'll redo it and it'll get up to ten thousand. No, they won't. They won't. They're like like you just said, that the IRS reporting limit at ten thousand has been that way for lifetimes. There's a couple of other things in here. One that's good and one that's bad in my opinion, uh, and one that's medium. They're going to also kind of look at opportunities and risks associated with uh, using digital asset in like four hundred one k accounts, and they're going to require that. Exchanges and other places disclose more information about how they're storing it, and they also go in here to kind of give miners some protection, which I think is a good thing to see. Uh, that they they're not considered brokers; they're making that putting that on paper. The one that I'm a little mixed on because it's really going to depend on how they conduct it is it also calls for a study on energy usage by mining and a whole like you know like set up to figure out how it works, go out there analyze you know, the different type and amount of energy used for mining and come back with a big report.
1: This is the altcoin proof of stake lobby that is so happy to deflect all the perceived sins of cryptocurrency onto Bitcoin's proof of work energy usage. Because at the end of the day, none of these altcoins need proof of work because they don't need a trustless consensus mechanism because they're centralized projects. So if you're not even trying to be decentralized and trustless, You don't care about proof of work because you don't need what it gives you. So proof of stake works fine. And, you know, if you can basically say, hey, look, I understand all you guys are angry about cryptocurrencies, but it's really the proof of work that's doing all the bad stuff. Yeah. You know, it's convenient.
0: And Bitcoin is attempting to be a different product and it needs a higher level of security. Now, but then again, if the people that conduct the survey reach out to things like the Bitcoin Mining Council, they'll get a number like 58 percent of Bitcoin mining in the United States is done with renewable energy right now.
1: Yeah, well, why not 100
0: percent? You know, I mean, getting there, though. But really, my point is, it just depends on who they interact with. If they interact with a bunch of proof of stakers, then they'll come back and say, oh, yeah, proof of work is horrible. If they interact with the Bitcoin Mining Council and they discover, hey, look at all this stuff they've spun up in the last year that's using renewables. This is a this is a big deal for renewables. Like it just we don't know the angle of that kind of study. And so it's just sort of like, well, we'll see after it passes if something like this were to pass. Yeah, it's
1: complicated. And it really depends on the people that are involved. And I say that having listened to a debate between an energy grid researcher and a member of the Bitcoin Mining Council about, you know, is Bitcoin good for the grid? And what I just found completely striking was that the anti-position, Bitcoin is bad for the grid, which is held by this energy grid researcher fellow, I forget his name. It was entirely subjective. His view was simply that Bitcoin mining is clearly a waste. And so any allocation of energy to it is a waste. And it is always going to be a waste because if you're adding waste, energy load to the grid, the grid is less good because you have all this waste on the You know, it was this very circular well, argument that you it cannot get away from this value judgment around yes. what Bitcoin's doing. And maybe
0: that's why energy studies like this bother me, because if we all kind of agreed that Bitcoin was valuable, I don't think anybody would be talking about the energy use. Because like I already said it in the show, we don't really have that conversation about air conditioning. We don't have that conversation about Christmas lights or tumble dryers because we find value in them.
1: Or... Extruded aluminum or steel. Or Teslas. These are all things that require lots of energy. Anyway, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's a circle. We, we should could. break
0: out. We should mention that, th- so this is likely not to go anywhere uh, this year at least. If it does go anywhere, it'd be next year. But what's probably more likely is this is going to inspire a different bill. It's like a starting point. That's why we want to talk about this now, because I wouldn't be surprised if this doesn't become the bill, something will be kind of drafted by what this started, right? Where this is the starting point, essentially. Yeah,
1: this becomes like reference bill material. So it it might show up in future legislation, potentially. Now, I have a quick PSA, not to alarm anyone, but listener of the show, Crypto Kyle, wrote in and mentioned that he noticed something odd about the cold card Mark IV bag. Specifically, the Mark II and Mark III bags were Bitcoin orange and the Mark IV bag had blue print on it. And this concerned him because it was clearly a different bag and he didn't notice any copy on the CoinKite website talking about the bag changing. And now the cold card bag is actually part of their supply chain security solution. They put every cold card into a plastic security bag that's very hard to open. So it's essentially impossible to open the bag monkey with the cold card and then put it back and seal the bag again. And the bag also has the serial number of the cold card on it so that you can make sure that you're getting the right cold card and not, you know, someone's putting in like a compromised one or something by attacking the supply chain while it's on its way to you. Now, he reached out to CoinKite, the maker of the cold card, and they confirmed that, yes, they did change the bag color, so you don't need to worry. But that wasn't on their website. And I think that for a mission critical piece of hardware like a cold card, a hardware wallet that's going to protect potentially large amounts of Bitcoin. It's very important to be aware of all these details, especially for a company like CoinKite, which sort of prides themselves on all of these security measures. Now, this is not a criticism of CoinKite. We all make mistakes, but they probably should have at least notified us that they were changing the security bag on the Mark IV. They said uh, that they're going to update the website, maybe make this clear. And they reiterated that all of the cold card firmware is signed so that there are ways to verify that the, you know, at least you're dealing with signed firmware and that should put minds at rest. So just brief PSA, nothing to worry about according to CoinKite and Kyle. but it's important to be aware of things like this when buying sensitive hardware like the cold card. Shall we get into the New York
0: Times article? Indeed. This terrible piece of journalism. Is it even journalism? Is it just tabloid at this point? It's so bad.
1: Yeah, you know, I really want journalism to survive the 21st century, but articles like this make it hard to believe. Let me just read the title. How trustless, in quotation marks, is Bitcoin, comma, really? In myth, the cryptocurrency is egalitarian, decentralized, and all but anonymous. Again, not true. It's not anonymous. It's pseudonymous. The reality is very different, scientists have found. And this gets to the first question. Who are these scientists? Well, this whole article is referencing essentially an unpublished paper. It's like a draft paper. It's not peer-reviewed, the authors, only one of the authors seems to have anything to do with computer science. So, you know, who knows what their qualifications are. But it's very odd because this paper, the title is Cooperation Among an Anonymous Group Protected Bitcoin During Failures of Decentralization.
0: .docx. Also, they, this is a, it's so funny, like they didn't take out any of the Word metadata. So you can see that it was created with Microsoft Word. It was saved on June 6, 2022. And this is the underscore clean version.
1: Uh, okay. So this is... <laughs> An unpublished recent paper, and it somehow ends up in the New York Times. It's kind of like the New York Times is really digging for content to throw at Bitcoin. This
0: is wild. I mean, why not just wait for it to be peer-reviewed before they ran with it? I don't know. They needed something today, I guess.
1: The title of the paper is a little spicy, but the abstract conclusion is completely benign, in my view. Let me just read you the end of the abstract. Although Bitcoin was designed to rely on a decentralized trustless network of anonymous agents, again, that's wrong, it's pseudonymous, Its early success rested instead on cooperation among a small group of altruistic founders. Okay, this kind of gives you a hint about what's going on. They look at the period between Bitcoin's launch in 2009 and 2011, and they conclude that there were only 64 major miners. Now, no one's disputing that. I'm not too interested in these details.
0: Right. This is considered in a time before Bitcoin had reached parity with a dollar, by the way. This is really early days.
1: This is essentially like pre-Bitcoin price. So at this point, it wasn't a financial good. And the network was highly centralized in the beginning. In the beginning, there were only two miners, Satoshi and Hal Finney. So there's no surprise that the network was highly centralized. What the paper finds is there were periods when mining groups controlled more or potentially up to 51% of the hash power but they didn't attack the network. Now, this, I think, gets to the heart of why this is such a silly paper. I don't think that the writers know what a 51% attack is. A 51% attack means that you can reorg the blockchain, and so you can double spend Bitcoin. A 51% attack isn't like breaking Bitcoin security and then suddenly all the Bitcoins pour out onto your lap. That's not how it works. What it does is it gives you the opportunity to double spend. And so the way that you execute a successful 51% attack and by the way, thank you, Bcash, for all of the successful 51% attacks that have been executed on the Bcash chain. Great data there. Great learning opportunity. Thank you again, Roger. Hope you're listening. Love to have you on.
0: <laughs> yeah, just send us a boost. Let us know. <laughs>
1: just, sorry. Every time I think of Roger, someone once said, Bitcoin would love to have Roger Ver back. He's Bitcoin Jesus. So if he crucifies himself on a cross of Bitcoin, we'd accept him back. Probably, actually. <laughs> yeah. You know. To do a 51% attack, essentially what you want to do is accumulate a lot of Bitcoin, send it to an exchange, trade it for something else dollars or maybe another cryptocurrency. And then you reorg the chain. So you never sent the Bitcoin to the exchange. So you have the other asset that you bought, but they don't have the Bitcoin anymore. And then you rinse and repeat. Just keep on doing that to exchanges. Hopefully they don't talk to each other.
0: These uh, original 64, all they needed to do was just cash it in on a few exchanges. At the Oh, way, Oh, how many exchanges were there back then? Yeah, none. <laughs> I mean, this entire. So the premise is, is that she discovers is that the lead researcher, is that there was a small group of people that had the Bitcoins initially, but they had to mine them, right? They had to mine them, and their incentives simply aligned until Bitcoin grew and grew and grew, and it grew much further beyond them. But this is, in the New York Times piece, this is a massive, massive revelation, and it's sort of used as a way to undercut decentralized nature of Bitcoin today. I mean, you read the headline. They're asking if Bitcoin is decentralized today based on things that happened in 2009.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's 10 years ago, over 10 years ago. And the network's completely decentralized and different today. And really, the article is just an opportunity to make unjustified aspersions about Bitcoin. They talk about how it's environmentally destructive, but they don't really put the energy usage in context.
0: They imply it's supposed to be anonymous and then criticize it for the fact that it's not anonymous. And they also imply in that article that The blockchain is like this private store of financial transactions and that only super skilled data scientists can dive into the secret lakes of Bitcoin's blockchain and extract secret details from it.
1: Oh, my gosh. These scientists, that's so amazing. Oh, wait, I have a block explorer on my home node and I look up Bitcoin transactions all the time. (laughs) I know. Did they install (laughs) Umbral? Yeah, yeah, definitely. They're using mempool.space running on an Umbral. Yep. Except, I'm not sure because they say that the blockchain data they used was only 327 gigabytes. So I don't think they had a full Electrum backend. So they might have been
0: looking this up on blockchain.com. Maybe. Or it's like <laughs> an old blockchain. Yeah. Uh, I, I. It's pretty. So the, those two little misunderstandings weave an entire tapestry of a tale that uses thick language to make everything seem so scary and so cryptic um i honestly wouldn't be surprised if some politician doesn't cite this new york times article at some point in the future it seems like it was handmade to deliver somebody a little bit of ammo yeah
1: for sure i mean this is just another arrow of anti-bitcoin fud you put in the quiver and you use it later when you need to say something negative
0: can i just add this when they look stuff up in the blockchain they refer to it and this is in the paper too They refer to it as data leakage from the Bitcoin blockchain. That's what they, when they look stuff up in the blockchain, that's how they refer to it. And that's even how the New York Times piece refers to it. But I just read that sentence from the actual paper here.
1: God, I feel like I need to change my
0: pants hearing
1: that data leakage.
0: We study the responses to a social dilemma in a group of anonymous individuals. They're not anonymous.
1: It's designed to be open. That's how you verify that there aren't double spends or inflation bugs.
0: Right. That's part of what makes it a hard asset is that every coin, is accounted for. That's why we can trust it without having to actually believe what each other say.
1: And it's easy to do because you can verify the blockchain yourself. That's what running a node does. You're verifying the blockchain. And the process of verification also makes the network anti-fragile because other new nodes or old nodes can verify data with you. And so this is what kind of makes Bitcoin completely different from all the other crypto projects. Because whereas Ethereum could be shut down if AWS was prevented from running Infura's servers. Because it's so hard to run an Ethereum node, there might not be Ethereum nodes outside of centralized data warehouses and, and data centers. So for Bitcoin, there are many, many Bitcoin nodes that are in very goofy places, like, for instance, on the International Space Station. I don't know who did it, but there's a Bitcoin node on a laptop up there, which means as long as the International Space Station is in the sky, if we all lost the blockchain today we could re-download it from the ISS.
0: There's also that satellite. There's a satellite service where you can buy a $500 satellite and it'll connect you to a node orbiting Earth.
1: Oh, actually, I have that. Yeah.
0: Well, it's,
1: Blockstream is broadcasting uh, via satellite. Okay. So it's connecting you to Blockstream's node.
0: Okay. I thought there was actually a node in a SAT, which would be way cooler.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't see how that's necessary. Though I have heard crazy ideas about building... You know, Bitcoin nodes, and then you bury them in an old oil well, and then you backfill it with like concrete and high explosive. I mean, it's like,
0: what? Why are you doing? I love it. (laughs) Speaking of data leaks from our uh, data scientist, when they saved this, apparently they used macOS version ten point fifteen point seven, and they also saved it at twelve thirteen p.m. on June 6th using Microsoft Word. And I have all the details right here. So there's a data leak too. Am I a data scientist now that I went and got the file properties on her PDF?
1: Oh my God, you might be a hacker. (laughs) Better not do that in the state of Texas or Ohio. Remember that journalist who was accused of hacking because they looked at a website?
0: Just congratulations, everybody listening. You two are likely a data scientist now.
1: Now go and ask for a raise. I hear data scientists make six figures easy. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do PayPal.
0: Yeah, let's talk about PayPal.
1: If I'm reading this article correctly, PayPal is enabling crypto payments. So previously, you could, quote unquote, buy Bitcoin on PayPal, but you couldn't do anything. You couldn't withdraw it. You couldn't send it to anyone. You just apparently had Bitcoin. But now PayPal is allowing you to transfer, send and receive Bitcoin, Ethereum, Bitcoin Cash and Litecoin. And I'm just wondering, how did they decide on these four assets? Bitcoin
0: Cash? I know. Like Litecoin, I can, I've i heard from people who trade that they like to use Litecoin to get in and out of places because of low fees. But Bitcoin Cash? Uh,
1: I mean, Ethereum, I do
0: they know how expensive Ethereum transactions are? Right. It's one of those things people have, though. So I can understand that. At least there's people sitting. I, You know, the only utility I could possibly find with this is that they do have this checkout with crypto product now. So I think maybe you could do a PayPal transaction financed by your crypto. I've never seen that option at PayPal. But I, it's what they say here.
1: I'm going to admit something I've never told anyone before. I think I might have some Bitcoin cash because when I was in Miami for Bitcoin 2021, there was a man in a dog suit and he called himself like the Doge guy or something. And he would just show up with like a boombox and start like breakdancing in a like a Shiba Inu suit. And he walked over and he gave me this NFC card. And I think there might be some Bitcoin Cash yeah. on there. So I.
0: Is that. Is Bitcoin Cash BSV? Is that the.
1: No, that's. I think it's BCH.
0: Okay. I have BSV because of a uh, fork. And I was just given. Satoshi
1: Vision. Yes. yes. That's Craig. Uh, Craig yeah. writes.
0: Right. I got some because of some fork. And so it just showed up one day in my account on the exchange.
1: Hashtag fake, fake Toshi. Yeah. Well, guess so that's what? That's an opinion.
0: You can't unload it. Nobody wants it. So I was, it was like worth 200 bucks or something. I was like, I'm going to get rid of this. I don't want this crap. No. Nobody wants to buy it from me. I I think I actually ultimately did unload it. I can't remember how. You know, I think I took a bath.
1: Yeah. I mean, and also if you try to use Bitcoin Cash or Bitcoin SV on an exchange, like you can sell it or whatever. They'll give you some terrible price. But they require like 10,000 blocks or something confirmation time like the Like Bitcoin after six blocks, that transaction is final because the reason that we wait for six blocks for a big Bitcoin transaction is. Just in case, because of weird things, maybe the network was bifurcated and there's a whole nother edge of the network that we're not seeing for the moment. And they've, you know, very they gotten really lucky and they built like six blocks really fast. And so we just need to make sure that there wasn't an interruption so that we don't suddenly touch that network and then our transaction gets reorged out because all these blocks suddenly appear and it pushes our shorter chain out.
0: This is the reason why decentralized networks are never gonna be as fast as a centralized network.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you build a distributed consensus network, and then you shorten the block time, you get an unstable network, Solana.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: But what what happens with Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Satoshi Vision, which is a fork of Bitcoin Cash, is that they still use the SHA-256-sum algorithm for their proof of work, which means that even a relatively small Bitcoin mining farm can essentially reorg the Bitcoin Cash chain, because it's just not economically profitable to secure that chain but sometimes because of price fluctuations there is a moment where bitcoin miners will jump onto the bitcoin cash or bsv chain and they'll just reorg it. they'll do weird things you know they'll es- extract some money from it but it's it's very it's very not nice it's it's abusive to the chain and hey permissionless system they can do whatever they want if they have the ability to the reason that bitcoin works is not because everyone's playing nice which is what the new york times paper would have you believe it's because It is prohibitively expensive to extract value from it in a way that isn't basically playing nice.
0: Yeah, one of the things that has always kind of impacted me about what Satoshi created is he created or they created a system that generally works optimally when everyone is following their own incentives. And when you look at those early 64 Bitcoiners, they were just following their own personal incentives. The network and the protocol, the software, has been designed in such a way that when people follow their incentives they tend to do things that are better for the network. Like, they try to get more mining capacity. They try to get that mining capacity with cheaper energy, which generally brings them to renewables. And people hold Bitcoin, and that also increases the health of the network. Like, all of these things that are you're doing it for yourself often have a positive impact overall for Bitcoin. And uh, that's, you know, the network effect.
1: On the subject of PayPal... I noticed that PayPal has a cryptocurrency council that they consult with about cryptocurrency. The director of research of the Digital Currency Initiative at MIT, Niha Narula, is on this PayPal council. So I just linked to a TED Talk she did. It's honestly not very interesting to me. It looks to me like she read Nick Szabo's shelling out paper on the history of sort of monetary technology and then stole a couple parts of it and then started to shill altcoins.
0: Yeah, she she talks about Bitcoin and Ethereum in the summer here in one breath, the radical promise of a world powered by cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum. We're not there yet, but in this sparky talk, digital currency researchers describe the collective fiction of money and paints a picture of a very different-looking future.
1: What I find funny is that she used to work at, like, Dig or something, so... It's like she worked at some tech startups and now she's the head of this institute. It's like, OK, well, I mean, you know how to like build a website, but how does what does that have to do with
0: digital it's, currency? It's funny, like PayPal has already kind of been written off by so many of us, right? They entered this space so ludicrously backwards that it's like, come on, give me a break. And, and there would have been a time, there would have been a period of time for sure where it would have been a huge deal that PayPal was doing this. And now it's like, oh, come on, who cares? They're doing it wrong.
1: They're like the Yahoo of fintech.
0: Yeah, no kidding. But I'm glad to see you can at least get your coins out of there now.
1: And our last story in our news segment. Oh, wait. No, we also have, God, we have so much today. So last week we discussed a very silly letter, uh, Concern.tech, from some you know technologists who were concerned about Cryptocurrency lobbying and you know, making sure that it's responsible.
0: I saw it getting passed around Twitter and the general vibe was this is your last chance to act now and save the world from crypto.
1: Yeah. And the thing is, like the people on the letter, I did I didn't even really realize this, but I mean Stephen Deal's on here obviously because he was promoting it and like that guy is not a technologist, he's a Twitter troll. Also, Molly White. What are you doing on here, Molly? I love your web three is going great project, but I mean this is just a this is beneath you, Molly. I'd love to have her on the pod because she would basically do like a altcoin schadenfreude episode for however long she wants to talk.
0: I mean, that's always fun. We'd have to do like a, we, you know, to make everybody happy. The episode before, we just, nothing but Bitcoin. Just nothing but Bitcoin.
1: Right. Maybe we'd do like a Bitcoin tutorial <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. altcoin schadenfreude. <laughs> so the funny thing about this financialinclusion.tech letter is they literally copy the website from the first letter. So it's kind of, it feels like an epic troll and The gist of this is that basically they're pointing out that Bitcoin is a humanitarian freedom technology, and they have human rights advocates signing this letter. And I think that the people who signed it are pretty on the up and up. For example, you've got Garry Kasparov. Garry, in addition to being a great chess player, has been a Russian anti-corruption campaigner and bringing up the problems with the Putin regime for a very long time. You also have Anna Shakovich on there who's part of the anti-corruption foundation in Russia. That's Navalny's org that basically got made illegal by the Putin dictatorship. So in my view, these are very serious human rights advocates, and they've put together a serious letter about Bitcoin's application in the fight for human rights. So I I think it's great because it trolls the first letter, which is just this insincere load of crap, and it replaces it with a sincere call to action on using a freedom technology.
0: Good on them. Good on them. And they make a good case in here that uh, Bitcoin helps people protects people, gives people an option that isn't the predatory financial system. And um, I think the only people who that doesn't resonate with are people who are blinded by the financial privilege of the West and haven't run afoul of any particular federal agency or anything anything that makes them question the stability of their asset long term.
1: Give it time, kids. Give it time. (laughs) Exactly. Happens to the best of us.
0: (laughs) Yep, it does. And it's going to happen to all of us over these next few years. So I think this is great to see.
1: And this brings us to economics. Now we have an article, and there were several articles about this. I clipped the one from a publication called The Business Standard. And it's it basically reports on Janet Yellen doing a brief Mia Culpa. And her message is basically hey, you know that time when I said inflation would be transitory? Turns out it wasn't. I was so surprised. Also, remember that time when I said we would never have another financial crisis in our lifetime? I was wrong. You know, mia culpa.
0: She actually said the words wrong, too. Like she really, I think she was out there taking the brunt of the mistake. She really put herself out there. And I, I, I loved watching every moment of it.
1: it yeah, it, it it is a nice bit of schadenfreude. I mean, of course, if you're going to have someone retire, it's Janet Yellen. She's quite elderly. So she's a candidate. But this is the part that I found interesting. And I quote, we're seeing high inflation in almost all of the developed countries around the world and they have very different fiscal policies, wrong. So it can't be the case that the bulk of the inflation we are experiencing reflects the impact of the American Rescue Plan. Now, this is a bit of grade A gaslighting, in my opinion.
0: This has got to be the new gaslighting. This is it. I think she just rolled out the new line that they're going to try to use to defend their actions over the last few years. This has got to be it. And you know what? At first, I was like, "Uh, well, what is the answer to that? Like, it kind of works on the surface. Here's my take. The data from
1: the Federal Reserve shows that, I believe, 40% of dollars in existence were created in the last 10 years, and 20% of those dollars were created in the last two years. That's a lot of base money creation. Now, over the COVID period, Most developed countries that had the ability to borrow in financial markets or had a currency with enough clout that they could issue debt and and buy it with their own currency, like the Bank of England or the European Central Bank, they have engaged in monetary expansion to fund programs that enabled lockdowns. So uh, job replacement programs, paycheck protection programs, bailouts to companies that were affected by the lockdowns. And, of course, all the corruption and pork barreling that goes along with that.
0: Well, and the bailouts that we got, uh, the the Paycheck Protection Program that rolled out. There's tons and tons of food stamp programs that launched. I mean, there was just billions of dollars spent in just that kind of stuff alone.
1: And we have no problem with that kind of spending. I mean, going to go out on a limb here, I think government exists to soften the blows of nature because at the end of the day, a lot of people, you know, can get hurt when unexpected bad things happen. And if there's a way to prevent people from losing their home or losing their job or whatever, it, you know, it probably makes sense to 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 protect those things so that people don't, you know, completely fall off the ladder and and really end up in serious need and distress. Now, the thing is, you know, on the one hand, that's going to be inflationary because what you're doing is you're stimulating demand for actual goods at a time when supply is constrained. Now I would argue that you can kind of solve this problem by simultane- simultaneously investing in supply. So essentially, you know, put even more money into building out programs to produce the things you want, you know, that are that are you know currently high cost. Um, that clearly hasn't happened. And I think that a lot of the, you know, my sense is that the consensus in Washington is business as usual. Let's just keep trucking. You know,
0: no need for serious reorganizations of the economy or supply chains. Well, that must literally be their point of view if she's saying that nothing they've done Has caused this problem. But yet again, she's miscalled everything. She miscalled transitory inflation. She miscalled a fiscal catastrophe. And now she's miscalling the cause of it. And how are they going to make corrective actions? How are they going to prevent this from happening again if they don't even acknowledge the cause of the problem?
1: My take is that I think we are in a new global monetary regime. Oh, I misspoke. Regime? (laughs) Sorry. My take is that we are in a new global monetary regime and an accompanying secular inflation regime. What that means is when the U.S. government attacked the Russian central bank's foreign exchange reserves after Russia invaded Ukraine, this demonstrated to every sovereign nation in the world and the banking industries of all these nations that holding U.S. treasuries, which is a proxy for holding U.S. dollars, is actually a politically risky thing to do because you never know when the U.S. government is going to gang up and take a demonetize your treasuries, basically take away your assets. Now, this is a long. Tra- this is essentially a slow transition away from holding the dollar as a global reserve asset. And other reasons to move away from holding the dollar are, in fact, that the U.S. will print dollars whenever there's an emergency. This is not the sort of restrained fiscal policy that you want to see from a country that you're holding a lot of their debt. I mean, essentially, they'll always pay you back unless you're a, you know, international pariah. The U.S. will pay you back. But if they print the dollars to pay you back, you're getting hit with inflation. So it's not really a good store of value at that point. Now, moving to a new international monetary system is a long process because there's a lot of money that has to move. And it's not really clear yet where that money is going to go. We've Read articles on the show that suggest that gold and Bitcoin might be places where this money finds a home at the moment. it seems like energy is the big problem, so it looks like somehow funneling government surpluses or or savings into energy is uh, something that might happen in the short term. But on the inflation side, you know inflation is a goofy thing because while you can kind of represent it mathematically, you know how many dollars are there in the world, how much goods are in the world divide goods by dollars, you get the price. If number of dollars goes up, price go up. But this is very simplistic. Inflation is actually a psychological process inside the human mind. And when people get the inflation bug, they start to behave differently. They won't wait for prices to fall anymore. And this change in behavior, this sense of scarcity drives people to actually spend more. Uh, Because if you think that your dollars are losing value, if you think your currency is losing value, better to store your wealth in physical goods that you can use food, fuel, whatever. So I think that psychologically the inflation mindset has set in. I'm just observing my own life and environment. I think about things differently. You know, if I'm at the grocery store and I'm buying like a a non-perishable thing like flour or rice, you know, I'll generally buy two now just because I'm going to assume that it'll be more expensive next time I come. And I'm right. You know, that's, that's what's happening right now. You know, I fill up my gas tank at the quarter tank, not the half tank anymore, just because I know it's going to be more expensive next week. This is an inflationary mindset and it's set in. So I think that it's very unlikely that inflation falls back to pre-pandemic levels. I think it's possible, even though we had an uptick in inflation this quarter, I think it's possible that we'll see quarters where inflation falls significantly, you know, maybe even down to 4%. But I think it'll stay there, and I think it'll spike again later. Because if we look at previous bouts of inflation in history in the 1970s and the 1940s, you know, inflation didn't just go up in a straight line. It went up, it went down, it plateaued, people got a false sense of security, it went up again. You know, it's a whole process, and it's slower than we think and also faster. So, hard to call, but, you know, I would basically plan for uncertainty in the future. That's my TLDR.
0: And her argument that, well, it's... (laughs) I can't be anything that we've done because all of the West is completely screwed. Well, that's because all of the West has been implementing, as you said, but not so directly, has been implementing the same monetary policy. They all have been following the lead of the United States and the IMF, and they've all been essentially doing the same exact process. So, yeah, it's not one policy. It's been the policy of the West. And in particular, in the United States, it's the policies that have been in place since the 2008 crash. A proxy
1: for trying to understand the complexities of fiscal and monetary policy, is let's just look at who's in charge. You know, essentially the same people are in charge. I mean, obviously the secretary of the treasury used to be Steve Munchkin, Munchkin or something. Mnuchin? Mnuchin, sorry. There's someone who has a very- uh, I like
0: Munchkin though.
1: Yeah, someone- has a very mean nickname for him, and I just always hear that, so it's hard for me to say his name now. He was
0: a character, that's for sure. But Yellen was, Yellen's been kicking around for a long time.
1: You know, I would say we'll get different policy when different people are in charge, and until then, we'll probably get the same old. So I, th- I think that we should expect the same old for a couple more years. And of
0: course they're going to say it's not their fault. Of course that's what they're going to say.
1: They're not like the Bitcoin Dad pod that has a weekly corrections section. This episode is brought to you by the self-hosted show from Jupiter Broadcasting. Listen to Chris and Alex talk about all the stuff they're doing with Linux, including running their own media servers, hosting their own files online so they don't need to rely on cloud services like Google and Dropbox, and much, much more. Check out the self-hosted show in any podcast app or go to selfhosted.show. We have some energy news from the Pacific Northwest. Shellon County, which is a rural Washington county, has created a new rate for crypto miners, and it's not really clear why.
0: Yeah, or uh, Chelan, as us locals have called it for oh, many years. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> uh, no, it's, we have a lot of tricky names here. We have a lot. Uh, it's just in our local area. But they have this new thing called the Rate 36 for crypto miners. And if you're mining crypto, you have to pay this very high rate. Even though they already had it, they already had kind of a deal worked out. They've got a new deal now. But the thing that's interesting about this story is that Chelan County told them that if they were to switch their computation over to information processing, i.e. cloud services, and not Bitcoin mining, even if they use the same exact amount of energy, they would not have to pay this higher rate. So the rate is based on what the machines are doing, not the power usage of the machine. Kind of seems like it's none your business what the machines are doing. I know. This kind of goes back to that conversation you and I had one time where we said, imagine if we hadn't called it mining, but we called it producing or manifesting, creating, right? I'm a Bitcoin creator, right? That sounds a lot cleaner and less intensive than mining.
1: Sounds like you're making funny faces on yeah, YouTube. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> and I guess maybe this is preferable. To, I guess this is maybe preferable to what uh, I guess this is maybe preferable to what the nearby Douglas County did, which is just completely ban all Bitcoin mining. Wait, isn't it pronounced Douglas? <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, it's worth noting this is all hydropower, right? This is all hydropower. This is not like we're burning coal and we're charging them more. This is simply one of two things. It's either they see a good money making opportunity and they're going to charge these crypto bros more because they can or it's a syntax. I'm not really cool with either one.
1: I wonder if there is a third option because the person quoted in the article, Malachi Salcedo, he's been mining in Washington state for a while. And I think these, there's been some controversy around his operation. So I wonder if we're wandering into like a personal feud and they're actually just like shutting him down specifically or something.
0: Yeah, it, there is actually a bit of a, a long... Hairy backstory to crypto mining in Washington. Washington was early to it because of that hydropower. Also, there's the whole aspect that the PUD commissioner had just got a big promotion in the state and he's kind of like the big energy guy now in the state. And Chelan is his home county. So there could be something to that too.
1: Well, we would love to talk to someone local who knows more. So we've reached out to Salcido Enterprises. And if we hear more, maybe we'll have an interview or something. Now, we have some privacy news, and it's weird. The website I found this article on is called Life in Norway, which I recommend you click through. There's apparently a podcast. I haven't listened to it. But in this article, Norway has a bureau that collects statistics. They call it Statistics Norway, but the acronym is SSB, which kind of sounds sinister to me. Yeah. Because it's like FSB in Russia is their spy agency. I think,
0: I think we've also been trained over the years. Anything that starts with SS...
1: Oh, yeah. But SSN, that doesn't bother you. Social security number?
0: Yeah, but it's not like a group, right? It's not like the right. SS. It's not the SS security. The SSN department.
1: group is right. coming. Yeah, I know.
0: There's bad now. You see, oh, now my gosh. Bad. Yes. <laughs> I'm worried.
1: What happens when I turn 65?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so there's that aspect of it, but I guess they don't care. They don't have to care. The SSB,
1: the Statistics Norway Bureau, they actually want to get granular transaction information from supermarkets. They want to be able to link Citizens with their supermarket purchasing history. And they claim that this uh, would be a very useful thing to do to analyze household consumption statistics. And they think that would help them inform policy better, social assistance, child allowance, things like that.
0: Yeah. And to help everybody get all the data, they're not only going to work with the grocery store chains. But they're also going to work with the payment processors, at least the ones that are responsible for about 80% of all transactions. So just in case you shop at a market that doesn't have this data sharing agreement, they'll get you on the back end.
1: I think we all know where this is going. Yeah, it's not good. This looks really bad because at the end of the day, this is the sort of data collection that China embarked on before they launched their CBDC project and China's stated goal was, yeah, we want to know everything you're buying because if you're buying alcohol instead of baby diapers, we want to fine you and force you to behave in a way that is more in line with our whatever political philosophy. Now, this is just the first step, but getting so much granular data about what every citizen is consuming is problematic in many ways. For instance, if this data is not highly protected and I think that Chris and I will both agree that history shows us that large organizations cannot protect data. It's just not possible to protect data at a large scale. Once you have to have multiple people with access to it and the data being fed into applications and analysis and dashboards, you've just got too large an attack surface to secure.
0: And stuff that's politically motivated like this, it just incentivizes people to go after it.
1: Right. So, you know... You can imagine like you want to run for a political office in Norway and suddenly your supermarket spending is public knowledge and, you know, you buy a lot of ice cream and now everyone's making jokes about you and, you know, you're a laughingstock. I don't know. Or you buy too much alcohol or whatever. So this seems really, really worrying for the people of Norway. And if we have any Norwegian listeners who want to comment, we would love a boost or an email. And you can always reach out at Bitcoin Dad Pod. At protonmail.com dot com, or send a boost using a podcasting two point app like Castomatic or Fountain dot fm.
0: Yeah, you know I prefer to have my uh, citizen spying done by private corporations that have to be compelled by national security letters, the way it's done right here in the U S of America.
1: No, no, they don't need to be compelled by letters. They can just be paid off. You can <laughs> the government just buys the surveillance from. If them.
0: it's not Visa or Mastercard, Google's happy to help. So <laughs> there's always there's always some willing party. I know we have the freedom option in the U S. <laughs> Bitcoin, please save us, please.
1: For today's Bitcoin education segment, we are going to rely on a recommendation from our listener, Bitcoin Lizard. Again, don't ask what type of lizard, just a lizard. And Bitcoin Lizard directed us to a website called OutputDescriptors.org. And this is a really useful website. It links to WalletsRecovery.org, which we referenced for people who are trying to recover old wallets and having trouble. WalletsRecovery.org basically helps specify the derivation paths of certain wallets, and this can be very useful for finding old transactions so you don't lose your coins. Now, output descriptors basically solve the problem of derivation paths. So I'm going to read a description, and then we'll try to explain what that means. Output script descriptors are strings that contain all the information necessary to allow a wallet or other program to track payments made to or spend from a particular script or set of related scripts, i.e. an address or a set of related addresses such as in a HD wallet. HD means hierarchical deterministic, and this is the derivation path because the derivation path tells the wallet how to determine the wallet hierarchy of addresses.
0: So you got a seed phrase. From that seed phrase, all these other things are then created and the derivation path tells software which path it took to get there.
1: Yeah. The seed phrase creates the master private key, and then the master private key can now derive sub private keys, and the derivation path is the algorithm to describe these sub uh, sorry, the algorithm to generate these sub private keys. So, you can imagine if you have the wrong derivation path, even if you have the right private key, it'll start like creating sub addresses, but they won't be the original addresses. So that that's confusing. And output script descriptors, output script descriptors solve that. Sorry, that's weirdly hard to say.
0: It is. It is. I mean, this is when I hear you talking. And I think this is why I think some people probably never self custody. It's going to be like when Bitcoin gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's going to be the minority that self custody.
1: I would say self custody is actually pretty easy until you start looking underneath the surface at how the sausage is made and then you're going to have trouble sleeping at night. (laughs) Yeah. So descriptors combine well with Miniscript. Miniscript is essentially a way of creating templates for Bitcoin script so that when you try to do clever things with Bitcoin addresses, you don't lose all your coins immediately. Miniscript makes it less likely that your clever experiment will end in disaster. And descriptors basically allow a wallet to handle tracking and signing of a larger variety of scripts. They also combine well with PSBTs, which are partially signed Bitcoin transactions. This is a technology used by the cold card to basically keep the private key separate from the the wallet that's on a computer that can then be internet connected. And essentially, uh, this allows output descriptors to help the wallet determine which keys it controls in a multi-sig script. This really would have helped me back when I lost a bunch of bitcoin because if I had been using a wallet that supported output descriptors it it basically would have encoded the construction of the multisig wallet into the the, the addresses and maybe yep. the private key too I guess yep yep so my tldr is that output script descriptors are the next step forward in making wallets much more robust and recoverable Because what they're doing is they're embedding the metadata about how the wallet was created into the actual addresses. And so you don't need to remember the derivation path. It basically encodes the derivation path into the transactions. And so if the wallet software supports that, it's much easier to recover funds.
0: Yeah, great. And I see one of my favorites on there, Sparrow, is listed. Cold card, listed. Spectre. Spectre, the Spectre wallet, listed.
1: Oh, and BTC Pay Server, but limited support.
0: Yeah, I was curious about that. I'll have to look into that because I think BTC Pay Server is a fantastic project.
1: Oh, totally. When I finally get around to making one for the show, that'll be a whole episode. Week.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm down to talk about that. I've played around with it on and off, and uh, I plan to spin one up myself one day.
1: And this brings us to feedback. I actually jumped the gun and already told everyone how to get in touch with the show. So you know, Bitcoin Dad Pod at ProtonMail.com or at Pod on Twitter. Now, we don't have that many boosts, so I'm just going to read them. Rapid fire boost. Pew, pew Rapid fire. Actually, there's more than I thought.
0: Hey, that's a good problem to have. Yeah, for sure.
1: So five days ago, Patar was listening to Be Water, my friend, not Exit Liquidity. That's a reference to Bruce Lee.
0: We know. We know. We
1: know. I feel maybe I should have just said Be Water, not Exit Liquidity, but... I threw in the My Friend to make it clear that I was talking about Bruce Lee. And Patar sends us 30,000 sats. Hey-o. Whoa, big booster. I wanted to make some fountain clips of this episode, but I couldn't decide on what parts to clip out because the entire thing is so damn good. Here's a big boost instead to show my appreciation. Bravo. Wow. Well, thank you. That is really nice. And then uh, we got 500 sats from Crypto Kyle. Again, same episode. Be water, my friend, not exit liquidity. Sometimes you all come across as Crypto Critics Corner, but Bitcoin. I want to hear more about BTC. Understandably, the crypto news comes faster, but more Bitcoin, Mr. DadPod. Well, that's some very good feedback. Thank you, Crypto Kyle. I hope we talked more about Bitcoin this week. I don't know. There's so much news and it's easy to get lost in that.
0: There's that. And there's also the fact that there's a stage Bitcoin is at in adoption and things like new regulations and new... New attacks about energy. Like that's really what Bitcoin's going through right now.
1: Now you've gone through this with Linux, right? Where it sort of evolves in stages and there are points where it's almost like the things around it are happening faster than Linux.
0: Well, or the things around it have to change in order for the next phase of Linux adoption to take place. Right? And I think that's where we're at right now.
1: I see. Tell us how we hit it in this episode. Was there
0: more Bitcoin, less? Yeah. Let us know. Did we do better?
1: Our next boost is 1500 sats. Thank you. From Awesome Man. Again, be water my friend on Exit Liquidity. A free market is going to reward those that create the most value for others. Debatable. I think the identity stuff is kind of a waste of time. Everyone will be on a Bitcoin standard eventually. Progressives should hate Bitcoin. They want equality, which is only achievable through violence, not freedom. Spicy take from Awesome Matt. I love it. Yeah, I always enjoy talking with Awesome Matt on our um Matrix. Matrix. Same. Yeah. Because yeah. he, he has a very sort of anarcho-capitalist libertarian perspective. I don't know if I agree that progressives should hate Bitcoin. I think that, you know, Bitcoin is a great savings technology and everyone can benefit from it.
0: And I think it's easy to argue that's a human right in our modern era.
1: For sure. I don't know about this sentence. They want equality, which is only achievable through violence. I guess that's sort of accepting the fact that inequality is a natural structure of the world. And I think that's kind of a, mm, how to put it? I feel like we definitely have a lot of structural inequality today, but that might be because there was always structural inequality, not necessarily because we live in a state of freedom and there's you know, natural inequality, like some people are just like better at others at making money and stuff like that. So I don't know if I agree with that statement, but I respect your right to have that point of view. Pew pew. Also, five days ago, we got 1,500 sats from Follow Reason, uh, listening to the same episode. Recently discovered your podcast and enjoying indulging in listening to old episodes. Thanks. John from North Queensland. Wow, thanks John. Yeah.
0: I thought that was a I thought that name sounded new. Thanks for the boost. Yeah, but is North Queensland Australia? Yeah, right? Wow. I know. Turns out you could download the file anywhere. Gosh.
1: <laughs> I know who let that happen. Did I mention that I just read that Bill Bryson book about Australia? No. Oh, I really want to go to Australia now. It just sounds so wild, like a place where there's just so many things that can kill you yeah, in Australia. Yeah, I was going to say, like you yeah. just go, you go swimming in Australia, and there are like ten things on every beach that will like just kill you horribly. And people are like, "Oh yeah, let's
0: go swimming." I mean, it's, it's wild. Yeah, or, or where you're not on the, when you're not in the water, just just walking around on land. There's, it's really yeah. something. There are
1: apparently these like little red spiders, and they're kind of cute. So like you know, I guess if I went with my daughter, she'd probably think they were cute, and I'd have to keep her away from them. But like that that guy bites you, you're dead.
0: Yeah. Wow. But you know what? They survived, and they they survived long enough to boost in.
1: I was just gonna say, if you can survive long enough to boost, that's a, <laughs> that's a success. Yeah. <laughs> our next boost is a thousand Sats from Red Green Refractor, one of our favorite names. Great show, guys. To play devil's advocate for altcoins like Solana and Cardano, oh, I'm gonna like this. I think they are more interesting when you think of them as competitors to developer platforms like AWS rather than Bitcoin. In that way, their purity and decentralization doesn't matter as much as how well they market and cater to developers as a place to build and deploy apps. I'm thinking about the play-to-earn market as an example of this.
0: Well, I think that's definitely their position, right? They want to especially Solana, they want to position themselves as a developer platform first, and that kind of explains away some of the centralization. I think the question is, is do you buy the premise?
1: I'm not building on these platforms, so I might have a biased view because I haven't seen the benefits. But from my perspective, they really look like the main driver of the project is creating a token and selling it to people. And everything else seems to be in service to that as a sort of marketing activity. Even if it means building some real functionality, at the end of the day, the important thing is the economic incentive. And I think that is selling a token.
0: Yeah, that's just, that is exactly it. Is, I just can't square the token, right? Like if Solana was a, somehow a, a computational system that didn't have a token that you bought or Cordana, I think I'd buy that argument. But because, you know, you can go to tradingview.com or you can go to an exchange and people are buying and selling and looking at prices. It's a digital asset people are speculating on. And as long as there's a speculative as- aspect to it, it's not just a developer platform, is it?
1: Yeah. I actually had a conversation sort of related to this with someone who is building a music NFT project on Solana. And this project, which I'm sorry, I forgot the name, Theo, if you're listening, sorry about that, boost in and we'll say the name out loud. But um, Theo's project was originally on Ethereum and they're doing something where you buy an NFT and it somehow unlocks a song and, you know, there's like NFTs and music on a blockchain, something like that. Now, what happened with this project was they built it on Ethereum, but then when Ethereum gas fees and price started going higher, they got priced out of Ethereum and they moved to Solana. Right. And What I pointed out was I think that this is kind of the problem of quote unquote utility chains, because if we think about it strictly, a utility chain is basically just providing utility. It's like this thing that allows you to run apps. And so I like to think of it as like my laundry machine. My laundry machine needs quarters. And so when I need to do laundry, I'll go to the bank and I'll get like, you know, a 100 bucks of quarters. So I'll, I'll, I'll hold a bunch of quarters.
0: And there is some logic to having an expense to operate the network. That way somebody doesn't just abuse it, right? If yeah. there is some expense, then you use the resources appropriately. It prevents spamming.
1: Yeah. But you get to these weird situations where CryptoKitties basically froze the Ethereum blockchain. And that was, you know, according to some people, spam. But other people were willing to pay the fees to run the CryptoKitty program. And I think this was, I want to say 2018. to 2018? 2017? That
0: sounds right. But even more recently... There was uh, a big NFT project that just in the last three months that skyrocketed the price of gas fees. Was this the
1: Yuga Labs Neverland thing? (laughs) That
0: sounds like what it was.
1: Yeah, they really—it seemed like they were seriously mismanaged that, and they caused like four hundred and twenty million dollars in gas fees or something crazy. Oh yeah, I
0: think we talked about it on the show a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. But
1: was it four twenty? I feel like everything's four twenty these days. (laughs)
0: Let's just go with four twenty.
1: The issue that we're getting at is that if you have a utility chain eventually either the price goes to zero and the chain halts or the price gets too expensive for the applications built on top of that. And I think that that phenomenon sort of speaks to what I'm describing, which is at its core, you've got a financial asset here and that's kind of what's driving all of the activity. And so even though you can build on it and it might look like a developer program, I'm just not sure. I don't know. I'm suspicious.
0: Uh, I, I fall down with you on that one. I completely agree with all of that, but I'd, I'd totally entertain a, another perspective if somebody wants to boost it in.
1: Now, we received two boosts from the white, oh, no, sorry, the wine elephant.
0: Double boost.
1: And they were both for 420 sats. And I think that's great because, you know, that's just a thing we do now. 54, 420 And now technically when it's double boost, it's
0: over 800 sats. I'm down with that.
1: I know, but (laughs) Wine Elephant broke it up to make a point. So thank you. And then we received a row of ducks from Nixer. That's 2222 sats. Uh, Thanks for being such a great source of Bitcoin education. Thanks, Nixer. God, that's so nice. Now our last boost, and I don't know what this number means, but it's 4,096 sats from Bafo. Now that's that's how I do RAM when I allocate RAM on a VM. If I wanted to do four gigabytes, I do 4096, four zero nine six, not four thousand.
0: Why? Why exactly do I do that again? I I mean I always like to go slightly over, you know, so that way when you look it up in the machine, you know, it's got a little bit over. There is a YouTube channel called Forty Ninety Six. There's a there's a game called Forty Ninety Six. But but it's actually because a gigabyte is different from a gig oh, yeah. gig right. yeah, a yeah. gigibyte
1: yep. and a gigabyte is actually one thousand. 24 or something
0: it's like some sort of there's a game think of this i found a game called 4096 so i don't know i'm totally stumped yeah i don't think it's about how much ram he allocates to his vm
1: oh okay well bafo hopefully you stick around and you can you know solve the mystery for us really like the show i'm holding my btc in coinbase and want to move out what wallet would you recommend i was looking at unstoppable thanks well thank you for the boost i've never heard of unstoppable wallet We have an episode on beginning self-custody where we get really into this. But briefly, I would say, let's choose a wallet based on what you have in front of you. So if you've got an iPhone, we recommend the Blockstream Green Wallet, Blue Wallet. Any others on iPhone?
0: Wallet of Satoshi?
1: Well, Wallet of Satoshi is custodial. Okay. okay. I've never used it. Not Wallet of Satoshi. One that I've
0: used is, uh, 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 you don't remember, do you? I don't remember either because I'm drawing a total blank.
1: You're shaking your fist though. Exodus. Exodus.
0: If you have multi if you have if you have uh, several coins, not just Bitcoin, probably Exodus. I lean towards Blue Wallet if you only are dealing with Bitcoin. So, on iOS. Those okay. are the two I use.
1: So, this is our non-judgmental recommendation, which is if you're a multi-coiner, mm-hmm. Exodus and then Blue Wallet or gosh, what did I just say? Blockstream Green. Sorry. Blue Wallet or Blockstream Green if you're Bitcoin only. Now, if you have an Android, you can use any of the wallets we suggested as well as Samurai Wallet. Now, Samurai Wallet is a privacy-focused Bitcoin wallet, uh, but you can just use it for regular Bitcoin transactions, and, you know, it's really good. Now, if you want to use your desktop computer, first of all, we do not recommend using a Windows computer to host a Bitcoin wallet. We're just not comfortable with that. We think that Windows has a lot of security problems. So if you're going to host a wallet on a desktop computer, we suggest, one, creating a new user account for your bitcoin wallet so you know you just go into settings create new user you know call the user satoshi bitcoin doquan whatever and then install the bitcoin wallet in that new user account that should provide some a little bit more security yeah and then we recommend the sparrow wallet on the bitcoin desktop
0: and that's really the one i have the most comfort with uh i always get a little hesitating when i start talking about mobile wallets um Not that I don't think the iPhone isn't a secure device. It's probably more secure than a desktop computer in most cases. But, um, you know, I just don't like the idea of the risk. You are taking counterparty risk with Apple. You are taking the risk that they won't ban that app from the App Store. I doubt they'd remove it from your phone directly, but getting banned from any future updates or being able to install it on a new phone really stinks. The other thing that's just a little bit scary about a phone is it can get, you know, sideways, and then you can't get to the file system or something like that and grab your wallet file. So there's certain elements that I still feel like if I were going to store more than a couple hundred bucks, probably wouldn't be comfortable with a mobile device being my primary wallet. You know, the batteries are sealed in there. They come and go. You drop them. You break them. You lose them. Um, a desktop PC, preferably a Linux box with Sparrow installed, just feels a lot safer.
1: And of course, you always want to back up your seed phrase, your passphrase, and your wallet derivation pack. And that is the end of our boost. Now, I got an email, and I forgot to bring it with me, so I'm just going to talk from memory. Okay. It was from a listener who seemed very privacy-focused, so Mm, I'll just use their pseudonym, which is J, maybe for John, I can't remember. And our listener was an XMR maxi, and we had an interesting discussion about XMR versus BTC, and basically how this person felt that the privacy guarantees of XMR were just really good, and... You know, but he was sort of toying with the idea of Bitcoin. And so I thought we would just respond to that.
0: I mean, I smile because it's like, what do you want to use it for? Do you want to use it as a store of value and an inflation hedge and something like that? Then I don't think uh, I don't I don't think anything but Bitcoin is the way to go. If you want to talk about something you're going to use for your daily transactions, so you have more privacy. I'd I'd, I'd entertain that, I guess. Yeah, I I agree completely. Look, if
1: you're going to do something that requires high privacy, like buy anything on a darknet market, or... Or you're just
0: super privacy focused. Yeah, or you're
1: just super privacy focused, which is cool. You know, you have the right to not be surveilled. That is completely your right, and anyone who says that's suspicious is uh, gaslighting you. (laughs) So, you know, go forth and transact privately with Monero, if you so choose. My caveat is I don't think that it seems to hold value over time the way Bitcoin does. It seems to be trending down to zero when measured in Bitcoin terms over time.
0: Yeah, that's what I was just looking at. And that's where I think the story is a little bit more iffy. Um, I mean, not that like anything's doing great right now, but if you were to say to go back really the beginning of this year, actually, even, wow, even at portions of last year, there's just clear periods of time where Monero is going downwards, even when Bitcoin is going. Up. You know, Monero doesn't necessarily always track the rest of the crypto market, for better or for worse. And um, I think that's because a lot of people see Monero as a spending money. And I, I think it's also suffering a little bit from the it came after Bitcoin effect. It's the one I noticed that does bridge the divide the most with Bitcoin Maxi. There's more and more Bitcoin Maxis that go, I hate all other cryptos except for Bitcoin. Oh, and maybe Monero. Monero's okay too. Have you noticed
1: this? Oh, yeah. I've always noticed that. Yeah. And I think that it's because the Bitcoin community and the privacy community really overlap a lot. Yeah. But at the moment, it doesn't seem like there is a scalable privacy solution for a layer one blockchain. So, Seth, for privacy who we've interviewed and who we've teased his privacy list work on Bitcoin for a while. He's compiled a list of Bitcoin privacy projects, which is really interesting. But his point is actually Monero transactions are smaller than Bitcoin transactions and all this stuff. And he makes a compelling case. At the same time, I'm unconvinced because Monero seems to work quite differently than Bitcoin. So generally speaking, a Monero transaction takes at least 10 uh, blocks to clear. And I'm not sure of the data footprint. Is this transactions somehow coin joining in these blocks i I don't quite understand how it works and my instinct because i've downloaded the monero blockchain and it is i believe over 100 gigabytes is that this is not scalable the same way bitcoin is because bitcoin has at least a factor of 10 more usage than monero actually is that correct there's like 100x the volume of transactions on bitcoin than monero and monero's blockchain is still relatively large. It's comparable to Bitcoin's blockchain. I mean, it's maybe one-sixth the size, but Bitcoin is doing something like 10 to 100x Jesus. more transactions. It's,
0: it's, I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. It's a ginormous difference in transit volume.
1: Right. So the issue there is just that it doesn't look like the privacy solution that Monero has done can necessarily scale to a global base money settlement layer.
0: Yeah. And that's not even bringing lightning into the conversation, which has changed the argument on Bitcoin side in my opinion.
1: Right. I think Seth claims that you can do lightning on Monero, but I don't know if anyone's doing that yet and it would be difficult because Monero I think has a much smaller community and less adoption in general.
0: I could do cash on Pigeon too, but nobody's doing it.
1: It's hard to be in a world with Bitcoin. Bitcoin's kind of like the 600 pound gorilla, and every other chain out there is going to get pushed around by Bitcoin and its network effect at this point, I think.
0: Now um, maybe you see it differently. Let us know. Uh, and uh, maybe one day I'll come on here and I'll say, you know what? I've decided to pick up a little bit of Monero. I bought the dip. I mean, there would be, there would be, it wouldn't be the craziest thing. It'd be probably more sensible than picking up some Solana or Cordana or something like that. Just a side note, I don't know if you noticed, but I think it was Litecoin just got banned in South Korean exchanges because of the new privacy stuff they've added to Litecoin. Oh, the
1: Mimble Wimble upgrade. Yep. yep. And we should talk to someone about that. That's really interesting.
0: I know, because something like that could happen in Bitcoin one day.
1: Yeah. Maybe we should do an episode on Litecoin with Mimble Wimble because that just it seems cool. Right? Yeah. that
0: seems very cool. I, when Litecoin did that, I was like, all right, time to take a look at Litecoin. It's been a decade. Maybe I'll peek over there again and see what's going on.
1: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Maybe something to do this weekend.
0: <laughs> you altcoiner, are you.
1: We're very committed to committing thought crimes on this show. So thanks for writing in and disagreeing with us. That's, yeah. uh, and I just wanted to mention, you know, I, I really have uh, been appreciating our listening community lately because you know, like uh, awesome Matt, you know, mentioned, you know, he's not really into the sort of like progressive angle on Bitcoin. And I just really appreciate the fact that we have listeners who engage and are, you know, are OK with us saying some things they don't agree with and being sympathetic to people stating their views sometimes in, yeah. a, uh, in an awkward way. You know, yeah. I appreciate that.
0: Being willing to have the conversation and not like table flip. Maybe that's the advantage of being early days is that people are, you know, they're clever. They want to they want to discuss this stuff. They actually, you know, everybody's intentions are like, let's sort this out. Let's figure it out.
1: I, I do feel like if you're the sort of thinker who wants to think about Bitcoin today, you're a bit more problem-solving, maybe. I think the Bitcoin community is often called tribal. There are certainly tribal elements, but I feel like in general, there is a willingness to engage in rigorous debate, which I think is very valuable.
0: I agree. It's fun, too. And why not, right? We're all in pursuit of the same thing, ultimately.
1: Well, thanks for listening to the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, June 10th, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here, as always, with... Me. I'm Chris. Thanks for joining us. Should I put my hat
0: back on? I don't know why you took it (laughs) off, man. I'm surprised we're not putting our hats on right now. (laughs)
1: See you next time.